If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this March 5th. 2017 this is the program where we talk about the news of the week and often the bizarre events of my life and where we provide you with a full two-hour oasis of honesty and rationality in the desert of insanity and deceit which is the american media cultural and political landscape my name is john ziegler i am your host in our number two we have a really outstanding interview with tom nichols who is the author of the brand new book, The Death of Expertise, and also an expert on Russia. So, gee, there's plenty to talk about with regard to that this week, and all that and more is in our number two. Last week in our number two, we spoke with filmmaker and very good friend of mine, Cyrus Narasta, about the movie business on Oscar Sunday. And I urge you to check that out as well. Again, that's in our number two. You can find it at Free Speech Broadcasting. Dot com, both via SoundCloud and iTunes, uh, which is how you can access this podcast. And boy, oh boy, did the uh, Academy Awards pro- nominations and the awards Oscar night the last Sunday. It seems like it must have been a month ago with everything that's happened since. But boy, oh boy, uh, was that memorable for reasons that no one anticipated. It was obviously shocking because of the fact that there was a snafu when announcing the winner of Best Picture. And obviously anyone who's been paying any attention to anything knows that the movie Moonlight actually won, but it was announced as La La Land. Now, uh, it, it seems as if a lot of people think that this is an overblown story. I actually I don't think it's that overblown mainly because I find it fascinating that something this huge could get screwed up to this proportion. That's what I find very interesting. And and the anatomy of how this occurred, I also find uh, quite compelling. So I want to go through that briefly before we get to the, the serious news of, of the week. Because like a lot of times when something really bat crap, crazy, stupid happens, it's almost invariably a perfect storm of circumstances. It's almost never one thing. And that's pretty much what occurred here. This was the ultimate perfect storm. So just to review, it's the big climax 
most people were expecting La La Land to win. La La Land had just won with Emma Stone winning Best Actress. And so there was an anticipation that La La Land, who had already won Best Director, Best Actress, a couple other awards, that this was going to be the cherry on top of their Sunday. So out walk Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. Now, interestingly, my wife and I, as we were watching this, and we were watching on a few-minute delay because of DVR, because, you know, we like to not have to watch the commercials, and we put the kid to bed, we put it on pause and all that business. So as we're watching this, we both say to each other, boy, this is really dangerous to have two old people who with no clue announcing Best Picture. Because Warren Beatty is a bit nuts to begin with, and Faye Dunaway appears to be mostly out of it. They're both old, right? They're both old. They're both huge celebrities. They've not lived in the real world for a very, 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 very long time. So they're basically creatures from outer space who are not really with it. But we were never imagining. We were figuring, you know, they would just flub it, you know, that in a, in a minor way. Like, you know, that nothing that would be nearly as dramatic as what occurred. And Warren Beatty, sure enough, appeared to be fumbling with the envelope and didn't seem to understand what was going on. And I interpreted that as, oh, Warren's just not all there because he's old and not that bright to begin with. And uh, he hands the card over to Faye Dunaway and Faye Dunaway says, La La Land, without even looking at it. And La La Land gets up there. A couple of guys give speeches. Now, one of the guys who gave a speech, interestingly enough, is a guy by the name of Mark Platt. He was one of the producers on La La Land. Mark Platt was also one of the guys who fucked the movie Path to 9-11, which we were talking about with my friend Cyrus last week. Cyrus wrote Path to 9-11. Of all the people who screwed him in that movie and were cowards selling out to Bill Bill and Hillary Clinton, Mark Platt was right at the top of that list. He was working for ABC at the time. So I was actually pissed that Mark Platt was getting his Oscar, because I didn't even know he had produced La La Land, and getting a speech and all that. And Cyrus texts me, oh, my God, they just took Mark Platt's Oscar away. And I'm thinking, because, again, remember, I'm watching on delay, and I'm thinking, did they miscount how many producers there were as opposed to how many statuettes they had? Because that's what I'm envisioning in my brain. I'm envisioning someone, which would be great, by the way, because I hate Mark Platt. I would. Env- I was envisioning someone saying, oh, I'm sorry, sir. We only have three statuettes and there are four people claiming to be producers on La La Land, so we're taking yours away. That was what I was anticipating because, again, we're on delay. Then all of a sudden you can tell that there's this commotion behind the stage and clearly all the expressions behind the people giving the speeches have changed and the air has gone out of the, the room and something is not right. And then of course they announce um, there's been a mistake. La La Land did not win. Moonlight won. Now uh, how this happened, I found to be, as I already mentioned, fascinating because I love figuring out how things went wrong especially when it's almost always for very human reasons. There were some conspiracy theories about this almost immediately after. Uh, The actor, um, 
I forget his first name. His last name's Anderson, black guy. Uh, I forget the, what the hell is his first name. Anthony Anderson is the is the black actor. He was hosting one of the post-Oscar shows on ABC, and half-jokingly, half-seriously, he thought this was all a big race conspiracy. He wanted to know whether Denzel Washington had actually won for best actor because, you know, obviously the man was out to get the black guy, and somehow they were going to screw up Moonlight, which was mostly a black movie, although it had gay themes in it as well, which is probably why it won in an upset because it had, you know, it checked all the boxes. Let's see, black, gay, low budget. Uh, we, you know, we like the movie. You know, everyone thinks La La Land's going to win. Let's let's vote for Moonlight. Anyway, Anderson went on and on about this conspiracy, which was obviously bullcrap. Uh, and, but what really happened is this, and it's amazing. We now know almost for sure exactly what did occur for, for all the, the things that are really important that we never get to the bottom of. It appears as if we have this one down to literally the second with photographic proof because variety, it's amazing. Variety put out a story, which I tweeted and oddly enough, CNN's Jake Tapper retweeted my tweet about this, which I found to be strange, but okay, fine. Uh, variety, has photographic evidence of second by second what really happened. And what really happened is this, that the guy who was in charge of the envelopes, a guy by the name of Brian Cullinan from Price Waterhouse Coopers, who fit the perfect profile of someone that this could happen to because he is a clear star fucker, right? He, his job is as an accountant, but this is his one-shot every year, or was, to hobnob with the celebrities and pretend to be important. His Twitter account has got Starfucker all over it. He describes himself as a Matt Damon lookalike, and he kind of actually does look. If, if Matt Damon had an older, not very good-looking brother, it, it would be this guy. Uh, so, you know, so he was perfectly susceptible to having a screw-up in this situation. And we now know... That at the very moment, almost exactly, that he was supposed to be giving the correct envelope to Warren Beatty, he was tweeting a photograph that he had just taken of Emma Stone backstage. It's proof. There's proof of this. There's even photos of him doing the tweeting, which is amazing. A tweet, by the way, he later deleted, which... You never delete a tweet like that because that's like basically admitting guilt, right? When you when you do delete a tweet, you're saying, I, I did something wrong here. So at that moment, he's clearly distracted. And obviously, what and there's even a photo of him with two envelopes in his hand at that moment. So obviously what happened was he had the backup envelope for best actress and the envelope for best movie. And he gave Warren Beatty the backup envelope for Best Actress. Now, this is where human error and the perfect storm comes in. If he had given this envelope to, let's say, George Clooney, right? If George Clooney had been the guy who easily could have been, Hollywood royalty, if George Clooney had been the guy and he'd gone out there with, say, I, I don't know, um, you know, think of Meryl Streep or somebody who's still with it. Uh, if, if, if the two of them had gone out to announce best picture, Clooney 
would have looked at the envelope and seen that on the front of the envelope, it said best actress, right? But Beatty doesn't do this because Beatty is out of it and Beatty's an egomaniac and Beatty doesn't care. So that, that line of defense gets eliminated because Warren Beatty is Warren Beatty. So then Beatty opens up the envelope and even as out of it as he is, he realizes there's a problem. Because when you look at the video in retrospect, it's obvious what happened. He, he even looks back at the envelope to see if there's another card. <laughs> so he knows for sure there's a problem. Because he's reading Emma Stone, Best Actress, La La Land. Because he's got the wrong envelope because it's the backup envelope. Why do they even have backup? Apparently they have backup envelopes because they need envelopes on each side of the stage because they don't know from which side at any moment the presenters are going to come from. So they want to be protected. Well, <laughs> good job, guys. That, that protection created this problem. So the last line of defense here is that Beatty should have, at that moment, expressed... Uh, some concern that, hey, wait a minute, there might be a problem. This doesn't make any sense. And he even looks off to the side of the stage, kind of like, hey, can someone help me here? Well, here's where Cullinan and his tweeting prevents that from correcting the problem because he's off tweeting a picture of Emma Stone backstage instead of being alerted to the fact that Warren Beatty is basically saying, SOS, SOS. We got a problem. Warning, warning. Danger, Will Robinson. Houston, we have a problem. Uh, But he's not saying it directly. He's saying it indirectly. Now, what I have not heard is where was Cullinan's assistant, a female? Why wasn't she all over this? Because she she was the supposed to be Cullinan's backup. Uh, I don't have an answer to that. So then, the funniest part to me of this whole thing is that. Beatty, knowing that there's a huge problem, (laughs) instead of saying there's a problem, he decides to hand a grenade over to Faye Dunaway. (laughs) It hands her the envelope. Now, again, part of the perfect storm here is apparently they themselves, Dunaway and Beatty, had had a fight over who was going to get to announce best picture. So in Dunaway's mind, when Beatty is is flummoxed by the card, in Dunaway's mind, she's not thinking there's a problem. She thinks Beatty's just fucking with her because he's debating whether or not he's going to let her say the name. So Dunaway's antenna are completely down if she even has antenna anymore because she's old. And so when she gets the card, she doesn't think there's a problem at all. And all she sees is... La La Land. Well, here's another part of the perfect storm. Let's say someone else had won Best Actress from a movie that no one thought was going to win Best Picture, right? Let, let, let's say you know some un, unknown movie actress. I don't even remember. Who, maybe let's say Meryl Streep had won for Best Actress because she was from a movie no one, I don't think, was even nominated for Best Picture. So if it had been Meryl Streep, Dunaway would have looked at it and gone, 
wait a minute, that's not possible because this movie wasn't even nominated and they would have stopped it there. But because it was La La Land and because everyone was expecting La La Land to win, nothing in Dunaway's brain goes, stop! And so she announces La La Land. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters, one, because it's a hilarious fuck-up. But, but two, because it completely destroyed what should have been a tremendous moment for the other movie, Moonlight. Now, of course, the cynic in me says... Moonlight probably didn't deserve it anyway. I have to admit, I did not see the movie Moonlight. It might be a tremendous movie. A lot of people have told me it's a tremendous movie. But there is, I don't care how good it is, there's no chance it wins if it's not a movie with almost all black actors with a gay theme. There's no way. No chance. No how. It's all because of last year's controversy over Oscars So White. It's a reaction to it. It's political. So... The bottom line here is that Brian Cullinan is no longer going to be the guy at the Oscars, although he has not changed his Twitter account last I checked. Uh, although I, I think he's actually gotten away scot-free. He has not been fired from his job. He's just not going to do the uh, the Oscars anymore. Neither is his assistant. And he's not become a household name, which has really surprised me. Uh, he's kind of getting away with this. When you consider how big a screw-up this was, uh, most people are never going to remember the name Brian Cullinan. The other element of this that is interesting to me is think about the last year of major television events in sports and politics and specifically, you know, now with the entertainment and the Academy Awards. We have seen a series of holy shit, we're never going to see that again moments, unlike anything that in my lifetime and probably ever. I mean, almost every major sporting event, the NCAA basketball tournament, the NBA championship, the World Series, the college football final game, the Super Bowl, all of those were unlike anything we've ever seen. Holy crap, we're never going to see that again. Never, ever are we going to see that again. And it's happened in consecutive order five or six times. Politics, we're never going to see a Republican presidential primary like that again. We're never going to see presidential debates like that again. We're never going to see an election night like that again. We're never going to see an Academy Awards fuck up like that again. It's all happening in the same freaking year. It's it's amazing. It's it's almost like we're getting close to end times, folks. Uh, Let's hope not, but that's what it feels like. All right, so the news of the week. It started really well for the guy who dominates the news now every day, President Donald Trump. He gave his pseudo State of the Union address, and you know expectations are everything in life. Everything. The expectations for Donald Trump are so ridiculously low; they're almost childlike. It's almost like you know when your child doesn't crap themselves. And you go, wow, that's just fantastic, great, good job, or you know, or or you or you applaud them for going poopy on the potty, you know. That's basically what, where we are with this president. So because he was able to give a speech in front of Congress, the pseudo State of the Union, for about an hour and fifteen minutes, and he didn't crap himself, he didn't burp, he didn't fart, he didn't directly insult anybody, he didn't tell any whopper lies. He didn't go out to the news media. He didn't even attack Hillary Clinton. Uh, He basically stayed on the subject. He he stayed on what the teleprompter told him to do. 
We applaud, and and I applauded him. I, I wrote a column for Mediate, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, saying this was, uh, at least temporarily, very temporarily, a presidency-saving moment for Donald Trump. He showed us that he can be presidential. I didn't go quite as nuts as a lot of these other commentators did. Oh, my God. It was almost Obama-like what some of the even liberal media pundits did in response. Oh, oh my God. It was so awesome. Well, again, because your expectations are so incredibly low. I do find it pretty hilarious and ironic that Donald Trump can only be a passable president when he is using a teleprompter, a teleprompter which he used to roundly and routinely mock President Obama for using. And he, I mean, he used to mock, oh, I can't believe anyone would use a teleprompter. You know, Now without a teleprompter, Trump can't be president because he's not disciplined enough. He's not knowledgeable enough. He's too much of a conspiracy theorist. He's too much, he's too much of an egomaniac. He can't help himself. But I'll give credit where credit is due. He did a really good job with some really excellent moments of articulating his vision to Congress and the American people. Now, I have some problems with that vision because that vision is not remotely, forget about conservative, it's not even Republican. It is government-based on everything. Government is the solution to everything. Government spending is the solution for everything. And as I wrote in my media column, I would, if this Donald Trump, if this, if this was the Donald Trump that we got on a routine basis during the campaign, you know, where he, he wasn't insane and he was presidential and he seemed at least somewhat knowledgeable, I don't, you know, even if he was as liberal as he was Tuesday night, if that Donald Trump had been the guy who ran for president and he identified himself as a Democrat, or even, let's say, a non-Republican, some other party, and he ran against Hillary Clinton, and those were the only two options, let's say, for some reason, Republicans forgot to get their petitions in on time and weren't on the ballot, okay? So if it had been Trump, that Trump of Tuesday night, versus Hillary Clinton, and Trump did not refer to himself as a Republican, I would have wholeheartedly endorsed Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. Wholeheartedly. The difference here is that because he is a Republican and because we have Republican majorities in both houses of Congress, there is going to be enormous pressure, enormous pressure on those Republicans to sell out to whatever it is he wants. And when you have a Republican president with a Republican House and a Republican Senate, and it's nothing but big government and huge spending and massive deficits, guess what that means? You have institutionalized big government, massive spending, and huge deficits for all time. All time. Because now even the Republican brand is inextricably linked to that. Democrats aren't going to go in the other direction. No Republican is ever going to go in the other direction now. Reaganism is as dead as he is, maybe more so. Small government conservatism is dead. If there was anything left of it, Trump killed it Tuesday night. It's over. 
And so that is really at the heart of one of the prime reasons why I am anti-Trump, by and large, with it obviously being, as I say every week, the caveat, some good things are going to happen. Some bad things that would have happened otherwise probably aren't going to happen because Trump is president. That's all good. But the analogy I always use is this is a lot like a drug high. Eventually, you're going to crash. I don't know when. I don't know how. You're going to crash eventually. But that's what Trumpsters and Republicans are experiencing right now. A classic drug high. They're selling out all what they claim to believe in. And there are going to be some good times. And it's going to be a fun ride for a while. But eventually, you're going to end up vomiting in the gutter. Eventually, it always ends badly. Again, I don't know when, I don't know exactly how, but that's what's going to happen. And in this particular case, it didn't take very long because the new Trump that seems so presidential, boy, that seems like a long time ago now, doesn't it? Because the news that has occurred since then has been much more consistent with the Trump we knew during the campaign and in the presidency up until Tuesday night. Before I move on to that news, though, I have to mention a story that didn't get that much play, partially because of when it broke. It broke the afternoon of Trump's Tuesday speech that I think is so emblematic of who Donald Trump is and why we are so fucked and why the news media is so perplexed as to how to deal with Donald Trump. A couple hours before his speech... News broke that he was very open to essentially comprehensive immigration reform, which is a code for amnesty for illegal immigrants. And something that whenever a non-Trump Republican mentions it, they're immediately perceived as a sellout. You're a cuck. Oh, my God. Gang of eight, Marco Rubio, he's selling us out. And this was reported, what was really interesting about this was, this was reported as having come from a senior administration official. (laughs) But here's the funny part. The people who were reporting it, mostly from CNN, people like Jake Tapper and and, uh, Wolf Blitzer and some others, the people that were reporting about what this senior... White House official said, had, it was widely reported, had lunch that day with Donald Trump. So it was obvious to anybody who knew anything about the way this works that Trump was the source. I mean, let's just do the easy math, folks. Trump has lunch with, with reporter, said reporter immediately reports, senior White House official says that Trump is open to comprehensive immigration reform. Guess what? That's Trump. In fact, as the story evolved, some reporters even said directly, yeah, this was Trump who said this. All right? Within the reporting, supposedly Trump had said that he might even add this to his speech. Now, this was perceived online as, oh, my gosh, he's doing the big sellout. See, I, in fact, even I, I thought, which I shouldn't have done because there was something about the story that didn't fit to me. I'm like, why would he tell this to CNN guys? This doesn't make any sense. 
But I went with it because the source was Trump. And even I thought, there's no way Trump is lying about this. this is, there's got to be truth to this. So even I said, suckers, you know, all you people that believe that Trump was going to be real hard ass on illegal immigration, which, by the way, I still don't believe he's going to be. Nowhere near what he said he'd be in the campaign. He's not going to fulfill most of his promises, but his his supporters won't care because they're they're crazy. And, you know, they, they think anything would be better than Hillary Clinton. Therefore, it doesn't matter that he doesn't keep his promises. But but here's what's amazing. So this breaks. This is a story for a couple hours. And then Trump does not mention anything really kind of sort of implied it. But but for all intents and purposes, it's not in the speech. So the next day, it, I'm assuming somebody goes back to the White House and says, what the fuck? What, what, what happened here? And a White House official, no lie, no exaggeration, openly admits that Trump, although they don't use the word Trump, that the White House was lying to the reporters in an effort to quote, this is a quote, a misdirection effort. That the, that the White House, and again, it's important to point out this was Trump himself, was doing a misdirection effort on the news media. Now, what does that mean, misdirection? There's, there is no end there. There's no goal. There's no purpose to that. Especially when you're right before a major pseudo State of the Union speech. What's the real meaning here? The right word was not misdirection. No, here's what really happened. The President of the United States was at lunch with some reporters and suddenly decided he wanted to fuck with them. That's all it was. That's all it was. The President of the United States found himself at lunch with some people he didn't like and decided, you know what? If I tell them this, they're going to report this and then they're going to look bad and I'll laugh my ass off. Ha, ha, ha. Fuck you. That's what the pres. that's what we're dealing with. Our president is a prankster at best. That might be the best description you could use in that circumstance. By the way, there are consequences to this. Because now no one will believe him the next time he says something. Or at least a lot of people won't believe him the next time he says something. And it might actually be true. I doubt it, but, you know, stranger things have happened. He might say something true. But he, he doesn't care because his mindset is what's good for Donald Trump? Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. Right this second. What will make Donald Trump happiest right this second? And making me happiest right this second is fucking with CNN. And telling them something not true so that they'll report it and they'll look bad and I'll be able to laugh. Ha ha ha. Folks, um, I, I hope you already understand the inherent problems of that. That would bother me if that was a boss of a major corporation. President of the frickin' United States? I'm sorry. That eventually is going to, those chickens are going to come home to roost. That mentality is going to cause a real significant problem at some point. All right. So, all of this, with regard to the speech, gets forgotten, most of it, at least, when the revelation comes out that Jeff Sessions 
the attorney general, had in fact met with the Russian ambassador at, at least once, probably twice, depending on your definition of meeting, in contradiction, apparent contradiction, to his testimony to Al Franken, of all people. <laughs> Can you imagine back at Al Franken's Saturday Night Live days if someone in the, like the mid-'80s had said, you know, someday Al Franken, Stuart Smalley on Saturday Night Live, is going to be a senator, and he's going to ask a question that will be critical to potentially bringing down President Donald Trump. I, yeah, I, yeah there, there's not a person on the planet in 1985 that would have bought that. But that's where we are. So Sessions gets asked a question by Franken about meetings with the Trump campaign and Russian officials. Sessions says he knows of no knowledge and that he did not meet with anybody. Now, that's not true. Sessions and the Trumpsters are trying to, I believe, interpret Franken's question for their own agenda, which is a human, natural human nature thing to do. Franken's question was not very well articulated, but that's not how I interpreted Franken's question. I don't think there's any ambiguity about Franken's question, and it's clear to me that Sessions did not answer truthfully. Now, whether that was intentional or not, I don't know. I thought that Sessions' press conference, where he says he didn't think about it that way and didn't lie, and that he's now recusing himself, which is interesting because if he didn't do anything wrong, then why is he recusing himself? Um, and look, I, I get the appearance of impropriety. Uh, and 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 I think Sessions is a good guy. See, that's part of what I'm confused by here. I think Sessions is a good guy, and I thought that his demeanor in the press conference, it was very consistent to me with a guy who's like, I can't even believe this is an issue. Uh, he was kind of smirking the whole time, not in a I'm getting away with this sort of way, just like I can't believe we're even talking about this sort of way. It felt credible to me. Now, I can be persuaded that that's, incorrect if the facts can you know show that but i'm talking about just based upon my gut level reaction to is this guy lying or not i felt like sessions was telling the truth however on the other side it's really hard to understand how you forget meeting with the russian ambassador in the middle of a heated campaign where russians involvement is already a major news story this was a meeting that was scheduled on the books, and occurred in his office with at least two other senior staffers. Now, that's a memorable event. Not to mention you also met with him at the Republican convention, although that would be, in my mind, less memorable because at a convention you're meeting hundreds of people, and you might not even have thought of it as a definition of a meeting. But there's no question that there was one meeting in Sessions' office with the Russian ambassador. By the way, not just any not just any Russian, a Russian ambassador, the Russian ambassador, a guy who our intelligence community views as a spy. All right, so this is this is it's hard to imagine how it is that this is a moment that has been forgotten. It's also really hard to imagine how. The other two people in the room with Sessions would both 
have had to, if you want to believe Sessions' story completely, would both have had to either not heard about Sessions' answer to Franken, or it never occurred to them, hey, boss, you know, is it possible that maybe we should disclose the fact that we met with the Russian ambassador because we could certainly interpret how, if that ever gets found out, that's going to look bad. That apparently never happened. Sessions himself even acknowledged, yeah, that probably should have happened. You think? No, that absolutely should have happened. And how that didn't happen when you were the Attorney General of the United States is amazing to me. Now, I have a theory which I, I pose to our second-hour guest, Tom Nichols, and we get into into great detail on this, so make sure you listen to hour number two of the podcast. But my theory on, on this is that Sessions might have been in a situation where he knows how insecure Donald Trump is about the nature of his election, the size of it, Russians' involvement, whether it's legitimate, and all that. Let's say that the meeting with the Russian ambassador was completely innocent. I don't, by the way, think that it was completely innocent, at least not on Russia's end. Right? Well, why is the Russian ambassador deciding to meet with Jeff Sessions, senator from Alabama, in, the, in September in the middle of this campaign? He's at least looking for information. He's at least taking Sessions' temperature as a surrogate. He's the number one surrogate for the Trump campaign at this point. He's the highest elected official that's associated with the Trump campaign. So I'm not buying that this was this was just a complete coincidence. I'm trying to give Sessions the benefit of the doubt. And I think it's possible that Sessions may have thought he answered accurately because he was taken aback by the question and then didn't correct it because he didn't want to throw more fuel into a fire that he knew the boss didn't like. That makes some sense to me. I don't know if it's true, but I I always try to come up with a scenario that, that is not contradicted by any of the known facts, and that one seems to qualify. In the broader picture, though, I don't know what the hell's going on with regard to this whole Trump and Russia story. I am most confused by Trump's reaction himself. To me, if you did not have Donald Trump's consistent and bizarre, inexplicable reactions to this whole story, not once, not twice, but every single time, very consistent with the dust out, protest too much theory. If that was not the case, my gut would be telling telling me this whole Russia Trump story is much ado about nothing. That there's a lot of smoke and it should be looked into because it's a very serious matter. But to me, in a weird way, there's almost too much smoke. Like, for instance, former apparent, although I'm not sure about this, Trump aide Carter Page, who is in the dossier, the, the infamous Trump-Russia dossier, and who had to leave the campaign if he ever was really part of it because of his connections to Russia very early on in the campaign. His interviews this week on MSNBC and CNN were so batshit crazy that to me it actually discredits the nefarious Trump-Russia theory because if if this guy really was part of anything nefarious, there's no way anybody would be letting him on television because he's that bad. And it's, I mean, it's so awful. 
So and most of this is gut reaction because we have so little information. But Trump's reaction is so over the top. And what Trump did yesterday with these wiretapping tweets, I realize that we've become desensitized to how nuts Trump is. But yesterday alone, I, I want you to consider just his tweets from yesterday morning. If any other president had accused the previous president, without evidence or logic, of having wiretapped him during the election, it would be the uh, larger than the equivalent in the entertainment world of Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway screwing up the best picture announcement. It would be way bigger than that. It, 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 this would be the biggest story of the decade politically. Now, because it's Trump, everyone goes, well, he was probably just having a bad bowel movement. And, you know, uh, you know they, 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 we don't really take it seriously, which is troubling in and of itself that we're not taking the president's words seriously because he's so crazy. But the allegation makes no sense. And it makes no sense from Trump's own perspective because there's only a couple possible scenarios on this wiretapping thing. Either, let's say Trump's right. Let's say he was wiretapped. For that to happen, it can only happen in two ways. One, the way that would be legal, which would be that someone, not Barack Obama, by the way, but let's say his administration goes and gets a Pfizer warrant. They have to go to a judge who has to find probable cause of a crime having been committed. Now, so if that happened, that's really bad news for Donald Trump. Doesn't mean he's guilty, but that's the that would be at this point if that was true. If what Trump if if, if what is if what Trump is saying is true, it is by far the most substantial evidence that something really really bad happened here and it's coming from Trump himself. Now that's scenario number 1. Scenario number 2 is the one that the Trumpsters will all believe, which is just crazy. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? Here's their here's what they're going to believe in. And Tom Nichols and I get into great detail on this in hour number two. They're going to believe that Barack Obama, probably himself, going into Trump Tower himself, wiretapped completely illegally in an effort to make sure that Donald Trump, who had no chance of winning the election, we need to remind ourselves of this. So Trump has no chance of winning the election, but Obama is so hell-bent that he's going to blatantly break all sorts of laws, make himself susceptible to to criminal time by destroying the Constitution and and our system of government by ordering a wiretap on a private citizen who's running for president against his favorite candidate. Now that... It's just flat out ridiculous. Especially with no evidence. And not just no evidence, but the White House today is saying, we will not comment on this anymore, and we ask Congress to look into it. You know what that means? Here's what that means. Um, we have no fucking idea what the president's talking about, and we're going to just pretend this didn't happen, and we are going to be able to not, we'll, we'll be able to explain why we have no evidence for it because we've said we're not going to talk about it. 
And we're going to put all the onus on Congress. And if Congress can't find any evidence for what the president's talking about, well, oh, well. And by the way, by then, everyone will have forgotten about this because the president will tweet about 100 more insane things by that time anyway. That's what they're doing. That's not the way they would be reacting if there was any belief within the White House that this is true. Because, because if this was true, as Lindsey Graham say, it would be much bigger than Watergate. Much bigger. And yet, Trump, Trump, if this was true, I, this is so important in trying to figure out anything that's a mystery. You have to consider for yourself for a second, what if this was true? And if Trump, as he said yesterday, morning, Saturday morning, really had, quote, just found out that Barack Obama wiretapped him, I doubt very seriously that he would have finished his Twitter storm by tweeting about how Arnold Schwarzenegger got fired from The Apprentice because of bad ratings, and then let's go play golf, because that's what Trump did. That's not what you would do if this was real, but it's not real. And you know what the ultimate proof that it's not real is? If that's the way the Obama administration really worked... Way before they wiretapped Donald Trump at Trump Tower, they would have released his goddamn taxes, okay? We've already known that the IRS was politicized during the Obama administration, so why the hell wouldn't they have just, forget about wiretapping, just released the goddamn taxes? Why didn't that happen? It wasn't because no media outlet was willing to do their bidding for them, I can guarantee you that. It didn't happen because they don't act that way. It's They didn't do it. Nobody took that risk. And that would have been a hell of a lot safer than wiretapping Trump Tower. So that didn't happen. So what's the third scenario? The third scenario is Donald Trump read a story on Breitbart that was based upon a rant by Mark Levin, the radio talk show host who used to be credible but now is on the Trump train, I think because he's pressured by his friends Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh and because of diminishing ratings and the whole in media industrial complex relying on this injection of Trump steroids into their revenue and ratings. And I've talked to Mark Levin about this. I've written about my conversations with Mark Levin. I used to really respect him. I no longer do because Mark Levin sold out. And so Mark Levin goes on a tirade. Doesn't even say, by the way, what Trump did, but this is how it works. It starts with a germ of a, of a commentary by Mark Levin. It becomes a Breitbart story. They make up some bullshit. And then Trump reads the bullshit and he further interpret, misinterprets the bullshit because he's a conspiracy nut. This is what this is how this happens. This is how decisions are making are getting made. Presidential announcements are being based upon conspiracy bullshit with no rationale to them at all. And conservatives are buying it like 90%. 90% of conservatives are just lapping it all up. And Sean Hannity is masturbating himself. And it's just, it's just amazing. It's disgusting in many, many ways, but it's also amazing. And, and the reality is, uh, you know, there are some who think there, there's a debate among serious people. Okay, was Trump really wiretapped legally or is he just making it up? Because there have been some rumors and some, I guess I'd call them reports, by somewhat credible people, though not that many, that in fact Trump was wiretapped, but it was legally because of suspicions of espionage by the Russians. I don't really believe that, and I don't believe that partially because of statements that were made 
by former Obama administration officials yesterday and today on the morning show, specifically on uh, Meet the Press with Chuck Todd. So, yes, they could be lying, but I didn't feel like they were lying to me. So, when in doubt with Trump, the Oxum's razor analysis is he's batshit crazy and or lying. All right, that's what it is. And I, I think that's what's happening with Trump. Uh, now, as far as the bigger picture, I do see, and this goes to their, to my theory, that there's something there. Yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily collusion with Russia over the election. That's where most people's focus is. But I do see that strategically, Trump is doing something here that's very familiar to me. If you remember, during Bill Clinton's impeachment saga, the Clinton the Clinton people knew they were screwed. Okay, they knew that Trump that Trump boy that was a Freudian slip. They knew that Bill Clinton was lying. He that he lied under oath in the Paula Jones deposition. That he lied to the grand jury. That there really was an affair with Monica Lewinsky. They knew it. So when you know before the public does, that you're screwed, right? What do you do? Well, if you can't change the evidence and you can't kill off the investigation entirely, you must demonize someone. You must find a boogeyman. You must find a target. You must find an enemy that you can destroy. Well, what I see Trump doing over the last several days And the wiretapping tweet was the height of it, but that wasn't the only part of it because you're seeing a lot of the Trump people and in a lot of talk radio, Rush Limbaugh is doing this. They're putting forward this narrative that this is all Obama's fault. These these leaks, that there is a shadow Obama government that's out to get Trump and that you know Obama is is creating this entire complex to bring Trump down. And that now we have Trump claiming without any evidence or logic that Obama wiretapped him. So in other words, who's getting created as the boogeyman? Barack Obama. This is all Obama's fault. Now, this makes sense for a couple of reasons. Number one, if you're in a crisis and you need to survive and you're looking to survive a crisis, and this is consistent with everything that Trump has done is in, in his entire presidency so far. And I've written extensively about this and talked about it on this podcast extensively. He is all about protecting his base. He doesn't care about expanding the base at all. He's protecting the cult. Protect the cult at all costs. Well, what's the best way to protect the cult? You discredit the media and your boogeyman is Barack Obama because the cult hates Obama. So you blame this all on Obama. Obama becomes Ken Starr. The Clintons found Ken Starr, the very nerdy, conservative, Christian prosecutor who they knew would not be allowed to fight back because he's a guy who's ethical, so he's the perfect target. Oh, he's on a witch hunt. He's he's sex-crazed. He's, he, he wants Clinton out of office for political reasons. All that was bullcrap, but that's what they did to Starr. They knew he couldn't fight back. Similarly, Obama is the perfect boogeyman for the Trump cult. 
It's all Obama's fault, and don't believe the media because it's all fake news. So if you hold off the media and you make Obama the boogeyman, you're protected. And by the way, Obama can't fight back that much. He can a little, and he will eventually, and he certainly has a a major megaphone for when he does, but as a former president, he's only going to be able to take one or two shots back. unless he decides to destroy all precedent and all tradition. So, you know, there's a little bit of danger on what Obama could do if he decides, all right, screw it. (laughs) I'm just going to go guns a blazing and fight back here. But even at that point, I don't think that hurts Trump that much because the cult won't care. The cult won't care what Obama says if he gets into a fight with Trump. So, I Now, to me, this strategy seems rather clear. So why do you have a strategy like that? Well, you have a strategy like that because there's something you're afraid of. I don't know what it is. I don't know how big it is. It may have something to do just with Trump's finances and maybe his, his, uh, his money ties to Russia, which have been talked an awful lot about. And, we, of course, we don't, we've never seen his taxes, so we don't know. But that would be my guess. But that strategy to me in the big picture is an indication that something is up. And again, we get into more of this in hour number two with the author Tom Nichols, so make sure you listen to that. One other column I wrote, or two actually, two other columns I wrote for Mediate this week, one of which dealt with Trump, which I want you to check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com, deals with one of the stories that got no attention over the last year which to me really exposed what a fraud and a con man Donald Trump really is. It's, it's interesting to me how oftentimes the stories that really reveal the most, maybe it's because they're too complicated and maybe it's just because the media is so incompetent. I don't know what it is, but they often don't get that much play. This week, the PGA Tour event in Mexico, of all places, should prove what a fraud Donald Trump is. And you're going, huh? What? How? Well, it's because of this. And I explain it all in the column, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And for the last, what? I don't know how many years it's been, since 1962 until this year. 1962 until this year. Way before I was born. Well, unfortunately, not that much before I was born, but a few years before I was born. Miami, Florida has hosted a PGA Tour event at the Doral Resort. The Doral Resort was taken over in 2012 by Donald Trump. It was renamed, of course, as everything is, for Trump. So Trump has owned the Doral facility in Miami for the last several years as they hosted a World Golf Championship event. Last year, after this particular event last March, it was announced that Cadillac, the sponsor, was bailing. Now, there was speculation that part of why they were bailing was because they didn't want to be associated with Trump's golf course because at the time, he was running such a controversial presidential campaign. Of course, no one expected him to actually be president. And that's probably partially true. However, there's more than one entity that can sponsor a golf tournament. And if you are a super rich tremendous businessman who wrote a book called The Art of the Deal, who built his presidential campaign on the fact that you're a massively great deal maker, 
you would think that you would be able to find another sponsor to continue this long tradition of a golf tournament at your resort in Miami, Florida. Florida, by the way, kind of an important state in the middle of a presidential campaign. This did not happen, which exposes that Trump is not a great deal maker because this deal would have been easily done for a great deal maker. It also exposes that he's not rich or nearly as rich as he thinks he is or says that he is. Because if he really was, the $10 million purse, you could have found it in Donald Trump's seat cushions if he was really worth $10 billion. You want proof of this? After his big cheating scandal, Tiger Woods sponsored his own, kept his own tournament going under exactly or very similar circumstances. He lost a sponsor for the World Challenge, not far from where I'm speaking to you from here in Southern California. And what did he do? Did he let the tournament leave? Did he let it go defunct? No. Him, not a billionaire, not even close to a billionaire, and coming off a brutal divorce where his wife took about half his stuff, he spends his own money, several million dollars, to keep the tournament going. If Donald Trump was really worth anywhere close to $10 billion, he would have done the same thing, if only for his own ego, so he could continue to give away the trophy on national TV every year and promote his golf course, Doral. It's very prestigious to have a world golf championship at your golf course. And then the coup de grace of all this is, you would, if you're Donald Trump, you would never let the tournament go under and move to Mexico, of all places. So here you are, Mr. America First, America Jobs, blah, 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 and here you are allowing this tournament because you don't have a few million dollars of your own money and you can't find a sponsor to keep it going. You allow the whole thing for the first time since the Kennedy administration. You're not going to have a tournament at Doral and you're going to let it go to Mexico. No. It only happens because you're a fraud and a con man. And that's what Donald Trump is. And you can read more about this at freespeechbroadcasting.com. The other column I wrote was about something that former President George W. Bush uh, said this week. He's been on a uh, extraordinary book tour doing all sorts of interviews for a book that he wrote, uh, which has paintings that he has done of our wounded warriors and telling their stories and all the money goes for the wounded warriors. And on the book tour, he was asked by Matt Lauer on the today show about whether or not Trump has done enough to unify us as a country. He was also asked about the nature of the news media, because obviously Trump has been very critical of the news media, and, and Bush said some really important things. One, he defended the importance of the news media and a democracy, which is interesting because nobody, until Trump, has gotten worse media coverage as a president than George Bush, especially in his second term. And I would put that up against anybody in the history of our country, at least the modern history. But Bush defended properly the news media's role in a democracy, which was interesting because, you know, a new poll came out this week from Pew indicating that less than half of all Republicans, 49% of Republicans, say that freedom for the news media to criticize our leaders is, quote, very important to democracy. Only 49%, not even half of Republicans. Interestingly, 76% of Democrats 
say that freedom of the news media to criticize leaders is very important to democracy. Now, part of that's because of who's in charge right now. Republicans don't like the fact that the news media is criticizing their guy, their team leader, even though he's not really on our team, but he's got the job somehow. So for some reason, at least half of us are willing to defend him so much that we don't even think the news media should necessarily have the ability to criticize leaders. Well, George W. Bush is in that 49%, and rightfully so, but he said something else very interesting. He told Matt Lauer, rather humorously, to his face, you know, one of the problems with creating unity in this country is that the media is so split up now, guys like you aren't as important as you used to be. That's what he told Lauer to his face. (laughs) I think, I'm sure Lauer enjoyed that. And then he went in to make the argument that I have made numerous times for many, many years, including my my book in 2005, The Death of Free Speech, that it is media fragmentation that is going to create, already has created, and will continue to create enormous divisions in this country, making unity almost impossible, where the Super Bowl is our last real communal event, and even that now is just below 50% with regard to communal participation of all Americans. And so if you're interested in that subject, make sure you check out uh, what George W. Bush said in my writing on it for media at freespeechbroadcasting.com. It reminded me his book tour of a couple of things. The number one thing about his book tour is it exposes what utter charlatans these media personalities are. People like Ellen DeGeneres, you know, who's obviously a lesbian and a lefty, she slobbered all over George W. Bush in her interview with him, partially because she's friends with his daughter, Jenna Bush. But obviously, close, more, more obviously, and, and probably more relevantly even than that, it's because George Bush is a, a decent guy. He's a good guy. And he's a funny guy. He's a great interview now because he's very self-deprecating. When Trump does these interviews after his presidency, they're not going to be nearly as funny because Trump does not have the ability to be self-deprecating. His ego is far too large. But but here's a guy who the left vilified mercilessly during his presidency, and now all of a sudden they have strange new respect for, partially because they're comparing him to Trump, and they go, wow, George Bush wasn't really that bad. But Jimmy Kimmel slobbered all over George W. Bush in his interview as well. And even Matt Lauer was was very respectful. Now, Lauer's in a little bit different situation because Jenna works on that show, the Today Show. But but still, the reality is that his entire book tour could be described as strange new respect for a guy that when it was in our interest, we told you was a horrible person. But now, now that he's safe and it's, we're comparing him to Trump, we can tell you the truth. Yeah, he's actually a really good guy. So keep that in mind with what frauds the news media is as well. The other thing about his book tour, it reminds me of um, maybe the the one thing I've done as a husband that has kept my marriage alive. And this is pretty sad and pathetic, but it's a a good story. You know, I'm not done very much in the years since I've been married. I've known my wife now for for over 10 years, but... um, uh, we got married uh, six years, just over six years ago. And in that time period, I haven't done very much that my wife can hang on to and go, well, you know, you really did good there. 
I think most husbands can probably appreciate this, but maybe me a little bit more so. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't have that much to compare it to. But here's what I'm talking about. So my wife is a big George W. Bush fan. And his last book tour occurred like five years ago, something like that. And as part of that book tour, he went on The Tonight Show back when it was here in Southern California, hosted by Jay Leno. And my wife wanted to go. Now, I didn't realize how hyped up she was to go to The Tonight Show to see George W. Bush until the day of. Had I known this, I might have tried to make some special arrangements because I have some tangential connections, at least it did at that time, that might have been able to get us like special tickets or something like that. Uh, I knew a guy at NBC Universal. I didn't do any of that because she just said she wanted to go. And, you know, when you go to the Today Tonight Show, you can just go that day. You don't need a ticket. You just stand in line. It's a very long, arduous process. But, you know, it's, it's a cattle call, basically, and you – you, you show up early enough, you're going to get in. So my wife dresses all in red, white, and blue like it's the 4th of July. She's all looking very snazzy. She, like she's, you know, she's going on a date with Uncle Sam or something. And, uh, and, and she says to me, I'm going to meet the president today. I'm like, oh, no. She really thinks she's going to meet George Bush. Now, she knows logically that this is impossible, that when you go on a cattle call, to the Tonight Show, there's no chance of that. You're not going to meet the, the person, especially when it's a former president. You're not going to meet the guest. That's just not going to happen. But she, she's already bought her book. So here she is all dressed up. She's bringing the book. And she, and in her mind, because she just has a feeling, she's going to meet George Bush, who she really loves, and he's going to sign her book, and it, they're going to be best friends for life. And I'm like, oh, no. Because, you know, expectations are everything, and her expectations are completely out of control. So I, I know I'm screwed. I know this is going to be a disaster, even though the best of circumstances. So we go, we stay in, stand in line, we go through the process, and the way they do it, you have no idea what kind of seat you're going to get. It's not like the people who show up earliest get the best seats. You could show up at the end, and you might end up by accident getting the best seats. So we're somewhere in the middle. And we go through, and they finally let us into the studio. And unfortunately, we have terrible seats. We are like at the top of the studio, almost the top row. And I could feel my wife's disappointment. I'm like, oh, shit. She really thinks that, like, if she had been in the front row, she could, like, during a commercial break, get Bush's attention. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what she was thinking, but there was no question she was bummed out. So I am despondent. I'm like, oh, this is going to suck. And, but, of course, I'm always thinking, you know, is there some way to save this? Well, sure enough, as it turned out, the seat right in front of me and the seat next to that were empty. I thought, that's odd. Why are the seats in front of me empty? Because that's not the way they do it. You, you fill in all the seats. But these two seats were empty. And I started to think, hmm, somebody important is going to be sitting in front of me. And sure enough, seconds before the show starts, two middle-aged white guys in suits, one with what looked to me like a Secret Service haircut, sit down right in front of us. So I'm like, all right, 
I have got to investigate this. So I hand the guy in front of me a note. I say, are you with the president? Because I'm positive he is in some way. And he turns around and he says, yeah, I, I, I am. I, he, the president's actually staying with me. So he wasn't Secret Service. He was a friend of George W. Bush's. So then, and I, I'm sure this guy could see the desperation in my eyes. Because I'm like, sir, you have no idea how much it would help me if there's any possible way to get my wife to meet the president, I would be eternally grateful. And he's kind of evaluating the situation. And I know this sounds crazy, but I guarantee you the fact that my wife was dressed up all in red, white, and blue, red, white, and blue scarf, and she had the secret conservative emblem, which is the American flag lapel pin. <laughs> I, I think that when he saw the American flag lapel pin, he goes, okay, th- these, are, these are legit Republicans right here. Th- th- this is not some sort of fraud or phony. So he thinks about it for a while. And I'm like, oh God, please, please, Lord. I don't even believe in the Lord, but okay, please, please, please make. So he, he turns to me about halfway through the show with Jay Leno and he says, after the president segment follow me i'm like okay cool so i go all right allison uh i didn't tell i didn't tell her i didn't want to get her hopes up i said look we're gonna leave early just follow me so sure enough president segment ends these two guys stand up i grab my wife's hand we follow them we follow them down the stairs we follow them backstage no one's stopping us (laughs) which is like the the perfect example of when you act like you know what, where you're, you're supposed to be and there's some guy, big guys with suits on, you can pretty much do whatever you want. So we all of a sudden find ourselves in a garage behind Jay Leno's stage. And there's a SUV waiting right there. Sure enough, out pops George W. Bush. And the guy in front of us says, Mr. President, your two biggest fans are right here. And... My wife's like, my, my wife is like, yeah, this is exactly what I expected to happen. So Bush comes over and he's fantastic. He's exactly like you would have expected. He's like, hey, want to take a picture? Let's do this. Uh, and, and so we take the picture. He signs the book. He asks about the fact that she's a teacher, thanks her for, you know, teaching young kids. And and he's off. And And the picture's hilarious because it's a picture of the three of us. And in the garage... There was, uh, for some reason, a carton of Bud Light <laughs> that was just above the president's head. So, so anyway, my marriage is largely still intact today because I can always say the one thing I did right was through a miracle, I got my wife to meet George W. Bush and got him to sign uh, her book. So um, I, at least I got that going for me, uh, which is nice. All right, uh, in hour number two, in hour number two of uh, this week's podcast, we speak with Tom Nichols, who is the author of a great new book called The Death of Expertise. We talk extensively about the all things Trump and Russia, so make sure that you listen to that. And also, as always, I ask only two things of you. If you like the podcast, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, tag me. I would really appreciate that. And two... If you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, do yourself a favor and listen to this 
important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.